Hello and welcome to IHBC at COP26. Conserving buildings and places conserves our planet. Today we're joined by Carl Elefante. Carl is an architect whose career is focused on existing buildings, whose years of engagement in promoting the relevance and value of the architectural profession culminated in his serving as the president of the American Institute of Architects in 2018. As author, speaker, advocate, and advisor, his energies are devoted to reshaping the built environment for healthy, equitable, and sustainable communities. His professional activities continue as Principal Emeritus at Queen Evans Architects and Adjunct Professor at the Catholic University of America and the University of Maryland. Well, welcome, Carl. Thank you for joining us. Well, good morning, Michael. Good to be here. Great. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us about, about yourself, how you got started, and why you're passionate about sustainability and conservation. Well, great. I want to begin by thanking, uh, you know, you and IHBC for, you know, helping to do so much with uh, making the built environment and conservation of the built environment really a meaningful part of COP26 this year. Um, so my background is actually not in historic preservation. I'm, I'm an architect with a capital A. And in the early years of the Clinton administration, I was got very interested in sustainable design and sustainable communities issues. And I ended up spending a couple of years serving on a commission for the Clinton administration. And was that, when that was done, I just kind of was looking at my architectural activities at that point. I was like, okay, I've got to change directions here. And I, and I just spent about a year talking with people about what maybe what that would mean. And of all the conversations that I had over that year, the one that really, really literally changed my life was I uh, got together with Michael Quinn. And if you, the name Quinn Evans and Michael Quinn rings a bell, that would be right. And you know, he talked about his work as a historic preservation architect uh, with his stewardship ethic really guiding what he did. And I talked about my interest in green building and environmentalism and the stewardship ethic really guiding my career. And within about a year, I was literally became, you know, a part of Quinn Evans Architects and sort of the, the rest is history. But really kind of bringing together that environmental ism concerns and preservation concerns uh, really resonated with me. Well, great. And of course, the greenest building is the one that is already built. It really says it all and, and fits in nicely there. I wanted to ask you, you know, conservation or preservation, we're oftentimes seen as sort of a niche subject uh, within the larger architecture, engineering, construction industry. How do we go about addressing the challenge of sort of mainstreaming these principles of conservation and sustainability across this broad industry? Well, I think that the the ability to mainstream conservation preservation work is really in the hands of us, the preservation community. Uh, in the first place, the numbers are sort of on our side. Uh, there's an absolute avalanche of existing buildings that is about to bury us. And, and that avalanche is buildings that are reaching a crucial age where they really will need substantial reinvestment to just simply remain viable. And this is something that we really know and we really understand. Many of those buildings are buildings that even we, the conservation community, see little value in. Uh, and I'll just give you the example of a lot of modern era buildings. Many people in the preservation field just look at them and go, oh, those are junky buildings that, you know, that they're, they're not deserving of our attention. But, but th they are, 
the, the, you know, uh, it's not just about architectural merit. It's not just about heritage merit. And actually, I would say that even in those ways, many uh, of those buildings really do have the type of merit that we usually uh, find in, in other types of buildings. But um, you know, we if we embrace the building stock that needs our attention uh, and find value in literally every existing building out there, there's you know our concerns are becoming mainstream just by the, that need becoming mainstream and particularly through the lens of climate change right and and i know there's a lot on this subject of course coming up to the comp as well and and i wanted to ask you because i know you're doing a lot uh for the comp a part of climate heritage network uh, which is sort of a pan um, sector organization have you seen our sector sort of start to um sort of coalesce around some of these shared messages to really move things forward i have and and you know so the chn the climate heritage network is a great example it's an organization that was literally created as a cross uh, you know, arts and culture and heritage uh, groups to go to COP, you know, to be to be ready to really address uh, our concerns about, you know, heritage and culture and arts in the language of, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, climate change concerns are. So, uh, the, uh, you know, the CHN is really, you know, representing this multiple, multiple groups to to bring this message to cop let me give you a little bit of a, a different perspective on this how how do we do with covid you know how was the wor world response to covid it was pretty disjointed uh and in fact you know something that maybe could have taken been taken care of in six months or a year is still hanging around being a problem if in 1939 we had been this disjointed and our resolve had been this disjointed, what would the world be like today? How, how are we doing? Well, you know, arts and culture and heritage organizations and the concerns that they represent are the key to the people of the world acting like a people and understanding that our diversity is our strength and really having the competence to be able to deal with such a, a diverse world. And, and that message is, is trying to be brought to COP this year. I wanted to ask you a little bit, so when, so when you get to the COP and, um, and you sort of have a stage, you know, what do you, what do you tell people who really don't know much uh, about the built environment? You know, you know, walk us through some of the headline numbers you give that can really sort of get people's attention. And, and, and why is it so important? Why is it so important for carbon, embodied carbon? What's your message to folks that are just sort of coming into this? Sure, well, I, I mentioned before this avalanche of existing buildings. And, and again, the numbers are stunning. Okay, So first of all, just really paying attention to what's going on. You know, since the Second World War, literally thousands of modern days have cropped up all around the world, and thousands of them. Uh, just to give you a couple numbers on that, there were more than 350 cities in the world in 2000 that were over a million, okay? Well, by 2030, that number will have doubled. Okay, so that's, wow. I mean, we're talking just monumental growth, just stunning growth. Uh, there are 34 cities in the world today that are more than 10 million people. So, uh, it, you know, there's just no pathway to a sustainable future or to a climate solution that doesn't deal with 
uh, the incredible uh, building stock that's been created literally in my lifetime. I mean, so much of this has been, you know, during my lifetime. And those buildings need to be kept. They need to be renewed and they also need to be upgraded. And let me just give you uh, just sort of a classic example of what this looks like. And I'll just talk about what is actually a pretty common uh, project. And that is, uh, you know, kind of mid-century office building that's now going to be converted to housing because, you know, the office market is, is uh, you know, so flooded with new buildings. So I'll take a typical 100,000 square foot building that would be about a 10,000 square meter building. And so now I'm going to convert it to housing. What do I need to do? Well, I, the retrofit scenario is to take the skin of the building, the curtain wall facades, and do something to them to improve their performance. In fact, even many times it's to completely replace them. That represents something like 10 to 15% of the embodied carbon, the embodied emissions that would be represented by building a building. Then, of course, the inside is going to be completely redone, all new systems, and we're going to put kitchens and bathrooms and do everything that's necessary to make it a, make it housing instead of an office. And again, that's probably 25 to 30 percent of the you know embodied carbon that it takes to make a new building. Well, really, when it comes right down to it, the only thing that we've really kept is we've kept the structure of the building and the floor plates of the building. But just by saving those elements of the kind of a typical modern building that I'm trying to describe here, that's at least 50% and easily as much as 65% of the embodied carbon that would be uh, you know, for, for a new building project. What that means is that we've avoided emitting something like 50 or 60% of the embodied emissions that it would take to create a new building. That's huge. That, that is a substantial number. Um, it, to just give you an idea, if we really crunch the numbers on a, on a renewal scenario versus a replacement scenario for a project like that, mm. on, the, on the replacement scenario, by the time you have made up for this huge footprint of emissions from making the building, what we call the embodied emissions from the building, it could easily be 20 years before you start recovering that in increased efficiency from the operational emissions. And under the renovation scenario, that's more like five to eight years. So it's, it's, it's really measurable difference in what you get from keeping and upgrading existing buildings, even I'll call radical upgrade of existing buildings versus what the replacement scenario is. Oh, it's a really compelling story. I mean, I, I know the numbers we've seen over here in the UK, 80% of the building stock in 2050 already exists today, you know, really compelling sort of stuff. And and the other thing, you know, you mentioned sort of the, the big modern buildings. Of course, the building stock is so varied in size and, and operation. I mean, I, I think you kind of got to it there, but I wanted to ask you how you think we should go about sort of prioritizing uh, opportunities to reduce carbon emissions in such a varied uh, environment of different types of buildings and, and uses and so forth. Yeah, so um, I think that I'll just 
really wear my conservation architect hat in this and say, okay, what we, what do we need to prioritize as, as a movement, if you will? I think the first thing we need to prioritize is to value all buildings, that, that it's time for us to get over, oh, I, I, you know, preserve Romanesque buildings or, you know, it's like we need to see the value of every building and really feel it's our responsibility to help the world around us understand the value of existing buildings and understand that they actually can be, continue to be viable buildings and be part of the climate solution. And then the other thing that I think we need to prioritize is to advocate for policies and programs that really support building retrofit and building preservation. And I'm just going to throw a term out there and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this later, maybe, you know, just explaining a little bit more, but it's to monetize avoided carbon. The, the, what I just talked about in terms of the new building scenario versus the uh, retrofit building scenario. Uh, our retrofit scenario results in avoiding emissions that alternatives that other scenarios would, would invest, would spend, would create that impact. And, you know, well, how do you find value in something that you didn't do? Well, we have to find a way to do that, to really encourage us to uh, keep and avoid uh, uh, you know, other scenarios, other, other emission scenarios. Right. Okay. And, and kind of getting into maybe policy a little bit more there. I mean, do you see that as being sort of the future of good policy in terms of, uh, of incentivizing or, or how do you go about then? Do you think incentivizing good policy uh, when it comes to valuing or monetizing carbon, as you say? Well, um, there's, uh, let me just kind of go at this in, in somewhat of a general way, okay, to say that, um, you know, what does the building sector need in terms of policies? And I, I just want to begin with uh, saying that we're part of the overall scenario in, in conserving and keeping buildings. We're part of this overall scenario that I think is pretty well understood within the building sector and maybe not so well understood outside the building sector. And there's a little bit of history here to go back to, you know, Paris and what really was the building sector part of the Paris Agreement and the understanding that, you know, was, was you know, built from that. And, and now we're going to go back and re revisit it here in, in uh, Glasgow. Um, so part of that is the story of Ed Masseria, who, by the way, is the AIA 2021 gold medal uh, recipient um, who came to Paris uh, from his organization, Architecture 2030, which, uh, I'm, by the way, I'm very much part of. I'm a senior fellow with Architecture 2030. But uh, so Ed, Ed went to Paris with uh, two things. One was a story about the U.S. building sector that literally kind of, uh, you know, w was one of the most compelling stories of Paris. And that story was that in the decade leading up to Paris, so 2005 to 2015, the US building sector had grown by 20 billion square feet. And during that same period of time, emissions from the building sector had actually dropped. So how do you grow and drop at the same time? And, and the answer to that is this stunning decoupling that has taken place since 2005 
between economic growth and, and literally building sector growth and energy consumption in the building sector and even more so emissions from the building sector. So, you know, growth and, and, and uh, you know, building sector growth is the lines are going up. Uh, energy is remaining essentially flat and, and emissions are literally going down. And it has to do with literally how we design and build our buildings, what their performance is, what we make them out of. That story in Paris kind of, you know, stopped everybody in their tracks. It's like, how, that's, that's miracle stuff. How can that be happening? And it's not miracle stuff at all. It's what happens when you actually pay attention to factors and design solutions into those factors. Ed came to the architectural community in 2005 with what is called the Architecture 2030 Challenge. And really, the second thing that he brought was this roadmap from the 2030 Challenge. What is it that we need to know? What is it that we need to do to be climate smart in the building sector? And it's, and it's pretty simple. We'll address operational emissions from the buildings. Are the buildings energy efficient? Are they basically not using fossil fuels on site? And then address the uh, embodied emissions. What is the construction industry doing? How are they making uh, their, uh, you know, th their products and so on? So today, with COP26, uh, things are a little bit different uh, in that uh, we really recognize that climate change is happening more rapidly than even it was understood in 2015, and that we really need to sort of ramp it up. So ambitions must be higher than what were accepted to be the ambitions at, at, at COP21. Uh, and in fact, I think it's fair to say that those ambitions will will not succeed in preventing climate change. We have to have higher ambitions. We have to move quicker uh, as well. So it's it's 65 percent by 2030 drop in carbon emissions, and it's 100 percent by 2040, not 2050. We just really need to move more more quickly. Um, and so today. It's, it's an interesting kind of variation of what, the, what that framework really means. One is that building codes have really moved forward very quickly. And in fact, the 2021, the 2021 codes, in, and in the US, uh, that's the ASHRAE 90.1 and the ICC and the IECC, the you know, International Electric Code or Energy Code and, and the International uh, construction codes, the performance levels in those codes are sufficient. We just need to adopt them and follow them. And it's funny because today there was an article, you know, saying, well, we're not doing that. I think it was in Bloomberg saying we're really not gotten, getting that done globally. Well, let's get that done. The second is we have to go to all electric buildings. We have to get the fossil fuels out of buildings. So, you know, Gas cooking, gas water heaters, gas boilers, you know, just get, get the gas out of our buildings and out of our streets. We just don't need to be distributing natural gas on every block of every city. I mean, it, natural gas is a marketing term. It's explosive toxic gas. Why do we think we need to have that in our streets? It's, it's, it's dangerous. We should get rid of it. And it's also strangling the climate. And then Last but not least, it's, um, uh, you know, the, this uh, 
uh, hugely important, uh, you know, decarbonization of the grid. Um, you know, that it, let, let me just put it this way: is our, using our buying power, you know, as the as these customers with millions of buildings. Uh, so, first of all, we need to be able to buy power from a clean grid. Second of all, we need to be buying from a construction industry that's a clean construction industry. And, and you know, this is really addressing the embodied carbon. We have to zero out embodied carbon. And, and we have the buying power to do that. Sorry, that was a rather long-winded answer to your question. But. No, that was, that was good. And, and I did want to, you know, you touched on architecture 2030 and you know, you're, you're at the COP uh, as, as part of that organization. And just could you give us an idea, um, sort of some of the specific, you know, how, do, how does the COP, uh, how does it work? How are you sort of presenting that message at the COP? And, and um, you know, who to particular? Is it the public? Is it policymakers or maybe maybe both? Or Well, I think it's both. And, and uh, so, again, you know, clearly COP is aimed at having the governments uh, really adopt uh, you know, the parties having, having the governments adopt uh, ambitions that are consistent with solutions, you know, and what we know from even from 2015 is that climate change is happening more rapidly. We need to act more rapidly. So Architecture 2030 has uh, issued a communique that it goes goes to all of those parties. And basically with this kind of uh, number one, uh, the, the, the targets notion that we need to have more ambitious targets, 65% reduction by 2030, zero by 2040. And then number two, this three-part program in, for the building sector, build to code, adopt the codes, build to code, uh, electrify buildings and do what we can do as buyers to influence the construction industry and then you know, have the construction industry reach zero carbon by 2040 as well. That that's a formula that will work. Um, I'm just gonna put on my own conservator's hat and say, oh, and by the way, monetize avoided carbon. It's a really key part of, of fairly pricing carbon. I would also, uh, you know, say that, uh, you know, the, the many in the construction industry and the ar architecture and engineering fields understand the roadmap, understand the skill sets that are needed, but more need to. So there's also a message here to our professions as well that, that th this is not something that, you know, let's wait around for another 20 years. It, it, this needs to be part of every project today. And then the last is with the public. I don't think many people in the public really understand the importance of the building sector in this. And, you know, so globally, uh, it, you know, the, the latest numbers from the UN Environment Program is that 38% of the of global emissions are through the building sector. Uh, I can tell you where I live in the Washington DC area, uh, that number is over 70%, it's close to 75. Coming from the building sector, look around, what is there? There's just buildings everywhere. Of course it comes from the building sector. Um, so all, all of those levels are important to really getting the, the message out of COP. All right, well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Carl. I, you know, in your estimation, what does the future look like? Are we, or what should it look like in terms of sustainability and conservation of the built environment? Well, I'm not much of a futurist, and I don't have a good crystal ball, but, but let me say a couple things that I think are, are particularly relevant here. Um, 
One is that, you know, if you're an aficionado of, of UN activities, and I've become one, believe it or not, you know, so we have the Paris Agreement in December 2015. Well, two other things happened just a few months before and a few months after that also at the UN level that I think really do tell us a lot about what the future is going to look like. The first was the General Assembly adopting the Sustainable Development Goals a few months before Paris. Um, and those Sustainable Development Goals are, are you know, literally decades of the UN from the Brunton Commission in 1987, you know, really saying that all of the intransigent social, economic, and environmental issues that are being faced around the globe from country to country, from situation to situation, all of them are part of an interlocking crisis of many dimensions. It's not just climate change. And then a few months after Paris was the Habitat 3 Summit in Quito, Ecuador, where the new urban agenda was adopted. And the new urban agenda, it, it's, it's a very simple message. You know, the 21st century is the urban century that we, this century began with, for the first time in human history, more than half the human race living in cities. And the UN estimates are that by the end of the century, nearly nine in 10 people will live in cities. So whatever the problem, whatever the solution, it's an urban problem and it's an urban solution. There's just no other method to have seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 billion people on the globe, but to have the dense urbanization that works for everyone, that creates those you know, healthy, equitable, sustainable, inspiring cities uh, that people need to really, uh, you know, thrive. And, you know, the, the last part of this that I'm going to mention is like, okay, we'll just take the climate crisis. We have to retool everything that we do. How look at how deeply embedded fossil fuel and everything do and everything we make. It's pretty stunning. Retool everything. We have to do it everywhere. It means that we're going to affect the lives of everyone. So everything, everywhere, everyone, let's get busy. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do and it will really set the direction for the future of humanity.